Hi, how are you all? I'm Tess, um, and I'm excited to be here tonight. So we're going to talk about Exodus, and I'm realizing this is a little uh, where my eyeballs adjust nowadays. Um, all right, I don't think I'm just going to hold it because that's a thing. Um, all right, so we're going to talk about the outer, the outer court, right? Um, and I just want to note that in my very first time teaching, I volunteered for the plagues, and this one has like the murder of animals, so <laughs> go me. Um, all right, so the outer court of the tabernacle, as you all have learned this week, is where you go to deal with sin. Like having a timeout chair in your house for your, you know, temper tantrum kids. God has a designated place for the Israelites to seek atonement. The outer court was for the general population. And as we learned last week, only the priest, um, the high priest, went into the holy place and the holy of holies, and then only once a year. But all people could come to the courtyard through the gate and make sacrifices for their sins to draw near to God in this place. So I'm going to go a little out of order from what the book did, because the bronze altar is really where the meat of the chapter is, pun intended. Um, and there were several things in this lesson that, as a lifelong Christian, were brand new connections to me, or at least long buried and renewed connections. So takeaway, you can always learn something new from studying God's Word, no matter how long you've been doing it. So. First, let's talk about community efforts. The community plays a role in the tabernacle construction and the maintenance. Last week, we saw the people bringing a free will offering of materials to build the tabernacle, and here we see them bringing supplies for maintaining several of the elements. So we've got the pure beaten olive oil, which they contributed for the perpetually lit lamps um, that were that was housed, the lampstand that was housed in the sanctuary, because they donated the olive oil and that was used to fuel it. Um, they also complied with a census tax, a flat amount that was to be afforded by all as part of their atonement, and it helped fund the tabernacle. So what we can take away here is that we should all play a part in the operations of our local church. We give money to church out of joy for what God has given to us, but also because giving financially honors our part as a local community of believers. The practical purpose is to keep the lamps running or the lights on, um, but that allows us to fulfill our mission of being a light to our community and the world around us. So this is indeed a group effort. Next, the bronze basin. The community played a role in this piece of furniture as well. The basin is made of mirrors, and they were typically made from highly polished bronze or copper. Um, the mirrors were brought by the women. Not just the men contributed to the building of the tabernacle. Its purposes covered all people, and so all people contributed. The priests washed in the basin, and it was a continual process every time they came into the holy place or approached the altar. So they were washing a lot. Um, even though they had been cleansed by blood, dressed in special garments, consecrated with oil, they still had to do this washing um, to avoid death. Um, the priests had been made holy, but they had to wash as they approached the Lord. They had to wash any new dirt off. 
This means they were doing this very often, and the wisdom for us today is to have an attitude of washing. Sin creeps in so often unnoticed. And so I think the act of regularly washing as we approach the Lord helps us continually be aware of sin in our lives and to deal with it then and not let it grow or fester. We're not washing at that point for salvation. We've already done that and secured eternal life by our initial decision to believe in Jesus. We're washing for maintenance and to ensure holiness before the Lord. And I think it's interesting that God used mirrors for the basin. Um, one of the things I read said, since we're made in his image, did he want the priests to see his reflection in them as they washed? So just a little thought to leave you with there. Next is the oil and the incense. God provides a special recipe for the anointing oil and the incense that's used to consecrate all the furniture pieces. Aaron and his sons are also to be anointed with the oil and consecrated or made holy as they go in service to the Lord. This is not to be remade in any other proportion or used in any other manner um, under severe penalty. Later, there's a whole story about somebody that does use it wrong, and it does not end well, I'm here to tell you. So for us today, I think one challenge is that we don't often think about reverence. Um, God has made himself so accessible and available to us through Jesus, and I think sometimes a little bit of a casual attitude can creep in, um, and I think these items were made with an intentionality and specificity that was holy and purposeful. And so it's such a gift to be able to come to the Lord as we are, but I think we should also remember that He is holy, and we should offer Him our reverent praise as we approach Him. Okay, now the courtyard. The courtyard is a rectangle with sides twice as long as its ends. The area, this is the area where the people came to sacrifice their animals. The whole congregation came in the one way to make their sacrifices. In two readings I found on this topic, the opening of the outer court, the gate, was referred to as the way. I got me thinking, first, that the church was originally called the way um, before they were began to be called Christians. Um, and then it reminded me of John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Um, and so as I kept reading, that particular source noted that in rabbinical tradition, the entrance to the holy place was often called the truth, and the entrance to the holy of holies was the life. Um, as many times as I've read John 14, 6, even when I memorized it all those years ago, I never connected that these three qualities that Jesus refers to himself as represented the temple. Jesus refers to himself as the temple in this verse and also in John 2.19 when he tells the religious leaders, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The meaning of John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the light, and no one comes to the Father but by me, seems so much richer now to me with realizing that he's referring to himself. Um, as the temple with those three qualities. The Father wanted to create a place to dwell with his people, and there was one doorway to draw near to the Father in that space. For us, there is one way to draw near to the Father, and it's through Jesus. In your relationship with the Lord, grow inward from the gate of the courtyard, the way, to learning and studying God's word, the truth, which is the holy place, 
and experience the abundant life of dwelling near God in the Holy of Holies. All right, now, the bronze or brazen altar. This thing was big. It was seven feet tall, seven feet, or, no, sorry, it was seven feet long, seven feet wide, and four feet tall. The wood of the altar is acacia wood and overlaid with bronze, not gold. Acacia wood doesn't burn up. It's a very, very hard wood, nearly indestructible. Acacia grows up in the desert with long roots, so it doesn't require a lot of water. And bronze is a fire-resistant metal. They also made the, the accessories that went with the altar, like the pails, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans. Um, they were all made of bronze as well. Like all of the tabernacle, the altar was portable with special rings and poles for carrying it. And had it been 100% fabricated in bronze, it would have been too heavy to carry. The altar had a grate, like a grill, but this wasn't a barbecue, so it wasn't a social gathering. The fire was always kept burning, and there were daily sacrifices. This is the place for sin offerings. This created a posture of perpetual surrender. There's an expectancy in this process. The people knew that the Lord would show up. The smoke reached him, and he would smell the aromas. They would be forgiven and reconciled through this process. So Leviticus 4 provides some details about the sacrifices, which were made from different points in the courtyard based on what animal you were offering. Bulls, animals from the herd, were offered at the gate, likely because they were large and perhaps tougher to control. Smaller animals from the flock, like goats, sheep, but also pigeons and turtle doves, um, they were offered on the north side of the courtyard. So let's personalize this process and walk through I wronged someone, and so now I need to make atonement. Uh, I come to the outer courtyard bringing the animal that I'm going to sacrifice um, to make atonement. The animal, whatever type, has to be unblemished. This animal is my substitute. Now, first, I need to come with a repentant heart. David tells us in Psalms 51, 16 to 19, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering, and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. The animal I bring to sacrifice also has to cost me something of value. I should feel the loss. In First Chronicles 21, David, again, has messed up. That's not bad. Um, he ordered a census of the people as a display of his own power, not trust in the Lord. And so when the Lord brings very severe judgment, David repents and asks for forgiveness. When he goes to build an altar on the spot where the Lord relented his wrath, the local landowner tells David he'll give the land to David. David says, uh-uh, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. So, all right, back to me. As I arrive at the courtyard and I raise an altar, I'm coming with a repentant heart and an animal I've chosen and paid for. Next, I lay my hand on the animal's head to transfer my sin to the animal. And then I kill it, not the priest's. 
The priests then place the blood on the altar and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar before burning the animal on the fire. I had to kill the animal. It died so I could be forgiven. And then came Jesus. In Matthew 26, we read about the Last Supper. Jesus tells the disciples about the cup. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Like the sacrificed animals at the brazen altar whose blood was poured out, Jesus' blood was poured out for us. His death created a new covenant that was so much more effective than the old. He died once for all of us. Hebrews 9.13 says, For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit himself, without blemish to God, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus died so I could be forgiven. Hebrews 9 also tells us, well, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. As you all leave this place tonight, here are a few questions to think about. Am I ruthless with eradicating sin in my life? And what is my process for daily washing? Is my relationship with the Lord growing and traveling inward through the layers of the tabernacle? Or am I stuck maybe in the outer courts? If I'm stuck, what are some ways that I can deepen my faith and grow and move into the holy place or the holy of holies? Ladies, I've been a Christian most of my life. My mom says since I was five, but I don't really remember that. I know for sure since I was 15. For many years now, I've read through the Bible annually, and I've participated in countless Bible studies over these many years. And I'm not saying that to brag or to toot my own horn, but to share with you that sometimes even when you think you're growing, you can find hard spots in your heart. For a long time, I know Jesus died for me and my sins. I've known that he is the perfect lamb who was the sacrifice for all. But as I worked through this lesson, I saw a complacency in my life. When I put myself in the shoes of the Israelite, laying my hand on that animal, knowing that I would have to kill it, it hit me pretty hard. And so for the first time in a really long time, I thought, if Jesus is the one sacrifice for all, it's like I laid my hand on him and hung him on the cross myself. He did that for me, and for you, and for us all. Now, I tend to process things through music, so I brought my little guitar, and I'm going to sing a song, and that's what you have the words to. So, I hope you'll... Pay attention to the words, maybe think about it as a meditation and a prayer as I sing this song on my cross.
Heavenly Father, we can never repay what you've done for us, and we just um, we pray that you would give us soft hearts um, and a spirit of gratitude so that we can pour back out maybe even just a little bit of what you've given us. I pray that as we leave this place, we'll think of your sacrifice, Lord, um, and find ways to honor you in it. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.